Today we're going to look at the Word of God from the prophet Nahum as we work our way through the minor prophets who are called minor not because they're less important, just because their prophecies that we have are, happen to be shorter. There's 12 of them, and we're working uh, through them this summer. And today brings us to the seventh one, which is uh, the, the prophecy of Nahum. And so I'm going to read chapter 1. There's three chapters in this book. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll look at some of the rest of the book, too, and consider uh, how God would teach us about himself. Because the, the title of this series is The God of the Prophets. And so what we want to do as we look at this is try to see what do we see about God that they saw. We're trying to have the Holy Spirit and seeking his help to, to see the vision that they saw of the greatness of God and his power and glory and goodness. And so uh, let's listen to the word of God from Nahum chapter 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for your vile. Look there on the mountains. The feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. This is God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, how great and glorious and awesome and powerful you are. And we see as we hear from this how far above you, above you are from the world in glory and might and splendor and wisdom and strength. No one can withstand you. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would help us to see this vision of you that we have from the prophet Nahum. They would humble ourselves before you and find in you that refuge of which you spoke 
Oh Lord, give us guidance. Give us wisdom. Be our teacher, oh Holy Spirit, even as you inspired these words. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach each person your ways, and that we would go forth from this place with a greater vision of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of attending our presbytery meeting, and a presbytery meeting is a meeting of regional churches or churches in our region. And I talked with one pastor down in Chattanooga, and he, I just said, you know, how are things going with you? And he said, things are going pretty well. He said, um, we're still kind of trying to figure out who is our church. Uh, people still regathering from all that's happened in the past year. So then we started talking about it and, and just discussing like all the things we had experienced, the, the confusion uh, regarding COVID and then, and then the, uh, the problems that we faced with, with the lockdown that we had here and then the economic problems and then the, then, uh, the protests and then the election and then after that the vaccine and all the questions people had about that. And, uh, and so we were just like, wow, this has been quite a year. And the question that I want us to consider, though, here is, where do we go with all these struggles? What do we do with all these struggles as they are moving around in our hearts and minds? And it's easy in the midst of all these things to get debilitated so that you're not, you can't do anything. It's easy to lash out at people around us. It's easy to just go numb. It's easy to let that anger fester inside us. But Nahum gives us a different alternative. He gives us a beautiful answer to what we do with all the struggles that we face. And that's going to be our focus this morning. It's found in verse 7 of the chapter we just read. He says, The Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He is a refuge. He is a place where we can go to find rest, to find peace, to find security. It's one of the most common metaphors that is used to describe God in the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, but also in the prophets. We have a place to go with all these struggles. We have a refuge. So as we consider how the Lord is a refuge from this prophecy, I'm going to look at the context of God's anger the problem of our anger, and the solution of God is refuge. So the context of God's anger, the problem of our anger, and the solution of God as refuge. Nahum, like many of the prophets, we know primarily simply from what he wrote here. We don't have a lot of additional sources from which to draw. And so we'll consider him primarily as we find him in this book. And we find the prophet Nahum writing about the nation or the empire of Assyria. And sometimes it's called Nineveh because its capital is in Nineveh. It is a first of a series of five empires that ruled the Middle East and beyond. And it is, these five empires are extremely important if you want to understand the historical context of the Bible. Uh, so Assyria is the first, and then it's followed by Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. In, in that time, 
Jesus was born. He was born under the reign of Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire. Assyria, Assyria was the first of this series of empires, and it was also the worst in many ways. Worst in the sense that it was the cruelest of the empires. It was a very, they had a very unsecure position in the north of Iraq is, is where that they would be found. And so they used terror to intimidate people around them. They centered their resources in the military and then eventually conquered nations around them in order to bring about security for themselves. So people were afraid of them and they didn't like them. But they also had a certain greatness. Nineveh, what they did accomplish something in building an empire. They had a certain level of culture. The first known library of the world was established in Nineveh. And it, is, it was actually found in the 19th century. And because of the books are on clay tablets, uh, we could still read what was in that library. It's called the Library of Ashurbanipal. And so it's not surprising then that even though it was cruel and had many flaws, yet God himself says it's a great city in the book of Jonah. And so even as we look at how bad Assyria was and we see the evil of human beings, we need to recognize that God's grace and common grace runs through all cultures and we need to see it and appreciate it. In spite of that, all this, in spite of the fact that it was a great city, God was angry with Assyria. Now, he was angry with them, and, it, and, and yet he reached out to them. He told them to repent, to turn from their cruel and unjust ways and their idolatry. And he sent the prophet Jonah, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, in order to tell them to repent. And they did. And God relented. But at some point after that, they repented of their repentance. And as a result, we have the prophecy of Nahum, who is speaking in that context when Assyria has gone back to all their evil ways. And so here's what he says about God as he looks at God looking at Assyria. Nahum 1 verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Now, we can see for sure that this is not the common vision of God today. That this is not, if you ask people around our country, you know, what is God like? They will probably not quote Nahum 1-2. But it's interesting, uh, Tim Keller makes an interesting point in his book, The Reason for God, which is a great book, well worth reading. And he, and he says that sometimes, well, in our culture, we have a certain bias about how we look at the Bible. So we're kind of offended as a culture by these parts that talk about wrath and forget, uh, wrath and uh, judgment and justice and so on. But he says other cultures would view it differently. They would be offended by the fact that God forgives so easily. They would be offended by the fact that God tells us to turn the other cheek. And so he recounts one conversation he had with a woman who was offended at the wrath parts. And so he asked her, do you think that our culture is superior to other cultures? 
And of course, no one wants to say that today. So it challenged her in her thinking. But, so I think that's a good way to think about this situation. But I also think we could say more because, in fact, I do believe that this world is crying out for a God like Nahum speaks about. They want a God who will do justice. I mean, think about all that you hear. People are looking for justice. They are concerned about the injustice of the world. They talk about them all the time. There's all sorts of people crying out for God to do something, for something to be done. And Nahum tells us that there is a God who will do something about it. And that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we know, also revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need the God that the prophets saw. And we're going to talk more about this as we go on. Now, so we see God as a God of wrath here, but there's some qualifications that Nahum makes. Even though God is a God of, to anger, he's not just one who gets angry immediately and then immediately acts and, and destroys everybody. He is, as he said in verse 3, he said, here's this angry God, but listen, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. So he's not quick to execute wrath. He is slow to anger. And we can see this in how he dealt with the Syrians. Hundreds of years that he was dealing with them. And so one of the great answers to the question when we, when we are struggling with wrong things that are done, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't he bring about justice? Is the answer because God is a God who is slow to anger. And some people may misunderstand that. They think because God may take a long time to act, that he won't act. But that's, not, but that's why Nahum immediately says this. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. In other words, there's nothing keeping him from doing what he wants to do. It's only his patience that keeps him from acting. And then he also says the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He's not going to let it go on forever. He will bring the hammer down in his own time. So it does not mean he's not weak, he's not unconcerned. And this was a question, the question of God's justice is one that people had about Assyria. In fact, God says that he used Assyria in order to, to uh, punish and chastise his own people. And so the great question of the prophets is, how, God, can you use this wicked nation to punish us, even though we kind of deserve it? And the, as the, the answer came back clear in the words of Isaiah, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. In other words, judgment is coming on the rod of my anger. Or in the words of Nahum, God is good a refuge in times of trouble. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Now, in order for us to really appreciate this, well, let me, let me just say, let me just make a couple points first before I go on. As we think about God in this way, we need to keep a couple things in mind. One is that we as a nation, or whatever nation you're from, and I th I'm thankful we have people from quite a few different nations here today, representing the kingdom of God, which is from all tribes and all nations and all kingdoms. Whatever nation you're from, 
your nation and our nation should humble themselves because Assyria was powerful and mighty, and yet God is saying that's not going to help you. God's wrath comes against those who oppose him, and we need to be humble about that. He says, however powerful they are, he says, whatever they plot against the Lord, he'll bring it to an end. doesn't matter how many resources they have, how many allies. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. So no one can stop the Lord. The mightiest of nations will fall. And it, it becomes very hard for nations as, as, they, as they come together to really reflect on their own lives. But we need to make an effort to do that on behalf of our nations to, to humble ourselves before the Lord. But then secondly, we should also humble ourselves as individuals. We are dealing with a God who takes our sin seriously, who takes injustice seriously, who does bring judgment, and that should lead us to humility. It should lead us to repentance, and we should reflect on it a lot more than we do because not one of us can claim that we're going to have any more days than right now to stand on this earth, and the Lord may call us home to stand before the seat of judgment. And what will we say? Are we ready? That is a key point that we need to take into account. This is the God that each one of us has to deal with. Now, that is, that is um, so as before we go on and kind of talk about the, God as refuge, what I want to do is kind of like take a step back and talk about anger in general and particularly how it relates to us because that's going to lead us back to why God is such a great refuge for us, okay? So first of all, anger is a powerful force in history. It is what moves nations to seek justice and to seek to do things in the life of the world. So think about 9-11 and the attacks on the Twin Towers. It, it brought about great anger in this nation. And what did that lead us to do? It, saw, it led us as a nation to be involved in the Middle East for a couple decades, fighting wars that we're only now getting out of. And I'm not saying anything about whether that was right or wrong at this point. I'm just saying behind that is our emotion in response to 9-11. And so I, the point is this. Anger is a big deal. And it's a powerful force also in the life of individuals. Um, you can see this. If you just talk to people at length, you'll find... They have complaints. They're angry about things that people have done to them, the wrongs they've experienced. They're, they're angry about the nation. They're angry about things that they see as wrong. People have a lot of anger. And so that's what leads us to think about God as refuge, as we'll get to in a minute. But let me say this. So anger is not bad. And we know that because God himself is angry. As it says, he has anger. And so God is good, and so we too are made to reflect his image, and so we have anger. Anger is really a God-given emotion that prepares us to respond to injustice and prepares us to overcome obstacles. So it's a, it's a good thing in and of itself. The problem is that our anger gets out of bounds and ends up being a destructive force rather than a force for good and righteousness. And so what we need to learn is to be angry like God while at the same time recognizing the difference between us and God. So let me flesh that out in four ways 
um, and talk, give you four considerations or observations on anger that help you process it and lead us back to God as refuge. So the first is that we need to calibrate our anger to reality. Calibrate our anger to reality. This is one of the most important things I can say to you all, is that um, our emotions are not always the truth. We really feel them, but that doesn't mean they actually reflect reality. And if you can get that point, then you will be open to a lot of, you will have a lot of avenues to transformation. The point is, when you feel anger, you want to look for the injustice. That's what happens when you feel anger. And so you pin it on something, somebody, somewhere. But the fact is, you may feel this emotion of anger, and there may actually be no injustice. So I know for myself, when I feel a lot of pressure, I can actually begin to feel anger. And I want to say, it's somebody's fault. But I know that that's actually not according to truth. And so we need to calibrate our anger to reality. God's anger is always according to truth. Our anger is sometimes, sometimes according to truth. Second, we should be slow to anger. We should be slow to anger. The the Bible has a word for the person who is not slow to anger, who simply gets angry and acts. And that is a fool. Read about it in the Proverbs. What we need to do is to learn to say, to let that anger be there, and we learn to think about it, to process it. But it also means that we should learn to take the daily offenses, the little things that occur, and we should be able to overlook them and keep moving forward. And even when there's serious problems, that we give people space to repent, that we're able to still be gentle even when things are, get hot. Third, anger should lead us to work against injustice. So when our anger is according to truth, we shouldn't just let it sit there. It prepares us for action, and we should act. When there are things that we can make better, we should do something to make them better. God has not created us to be passive about the problems in the world. We should do what we can. Now, in regards to the Civil War in the United States, I don't believe that it actually began with the goal of eliminating slavery. We can talk about that later if you want. But when, when some of the people in the North saw that there was an opportunity to end slavery, they took it. And many of them paid for that with their lives. They acted against injustice. And that's what we need to be prepared to do, sometimes even at the cost of our lives. We should not sit fat, passive in the face of injustice. But fourth... We need to leave what we can't correct to God. We need to leave what we can't correct to God. Those things we're angry about that we can't do anything about, we need to leave them to God. I was talking to someone recently who said they were basically kind of living in isolation up on a mountain here. And they said, they said I was just, all I was doing was I was watching the news, I was seeing what was going on. And it was just bothering me, and I'm getting more and more angry, and I'm getting depressed and all this. And 
then they realized, like, I just got to get out of here. So so they did, but that's another story. But the point is that, that our anger should not lead us to isolation and depression. We have somewhere to go with those things that we can't correct. We leave it to God. And that's what the Bible means when it says that God is a refuge. That, that in our hearts we have a place we can rest. We can pour out our hearts before God and find consolation and comfort in the good news that God is going to take care of everything. And that leads us to our fourth point, which is the solution to anger. The solution of God as refuge. There are many problems in this world that we can see but can do nothing to solve. Assyria is a great example. Most of the people there could do nothing or very little to solve the problem of Assyria. Even the leaders of Israel and Judah could do very little to solve the problem of Assyria. And so what were they to do with that fact? That there were all these problems out there that they couldn't solve. How would they process that emotionally? Well, God told them, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. I will do something. God was going to deal with Assyria even though his people could not. And so God said to Assyria, I am against you. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Nahum 2.13. So God was going to deal with the problems that they could not solve, and God was going to right the wrongs that they could not right, and so they had a refuge, a place of rest. They didn't have to let those problems go round and round their head. They could leave it with the Lord. And it's interesting, as you look at this book and read through it, you'll find that the purpose of the message about Assyria It's not really about Assyria. It's not talking about to Assyrians. The point is actually primarily to God and his people to tell them that God is going to take care of Assyria. You can see that this from chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Lord, or look rather, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. And what he's saying is you all can keep worshiping. You can have the festival because I'm going to deal with this issue. And the the last verse of Nahum says, all who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Nahum 3.19. And we see this even from the word Nahum, which actually means comforter. Um, When you first read this book, you might not think, well, this is a book of great comfort. Like if you're going to say you're really struggling with things, here, read the book of Nahum. It's probably not where you're going to send people. But it really is if you're struggling with injustice, which we all do to one degree or another. And so that's what the, the purpose of this book is to bring comfort. It is to learn to see the God as the one who will take care of all these things. It is to see, as we now have it revealed, that the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's going to sort everything out. He's going to bring everything back to where it should be. And it's going to be completely satisfying to everybody. And so we have a place to rest. 
So think about this in terms of a few situations. Think about your daily life. What do you do when you find yourself getting more and more frustrated with what's going on? Throw things at the wall? Not me. <laughs> no, I have done that. So, um, uh, But that's kind of, what do we do? We got to find some sort of release, right? Shout at the person next to you. Blame your wife, blame your son, blame your daughter, blame your husband. What do we do with these frustrations? We have a place to go. We can remember that however frustrating life is, however many difficulties there are, God is going to sort it all out. We can find our refuge in him. Think about some bigger problems. Let's say you have a job where you're on top of the world. You're making all kinds of money. You're doing big things. Then you find out in your company that someone within your company is a criminal. And there's criminal activity going on in your company. And then they successfully pin it all on you so that you get fired, you lose your money, and you end up flipping burgers at McDonald's because that's the only job that you can get. That is going to make you angry. That's an injustice. Where are you going to go with that? We have a refuge. Even in severe injustices like that. What about our, what about our children? We think, about, think about this. Probably one of the greatest injustices we can imagine is if someone were to take our children from us, whether living or killing them. We might find this happen in, in a more common situation in our nation in the case of divorce. When someone is, when their parental rights are unjustly terminated and they just go on and they know their kids are there and they want to reach out to them and they can't because the government has said, you can't do this. I think that's an injustice that will simply rip your heart out. And you might say, well, that's just so extreme. What do we do with this? Let me tell you. Read about Assyria. That's the sort of things that they were dealing with. Children being taken from you into a foreign land, sometimes killed. We're talking about real evil here, my friends. And and this message is coming to people who had experienced things like that, things that would tear your heart out. And he's saying that even in the deepest, darkest, most awful things we can imagine, there is a refuge. And it doesn't say it's all okay, like it doesn't matter. It says God is going to sort this out in a way that will make all things right, that will restore all things, and that will be completely satisfying. We have a refuge, no matter where you've been, no matter what's happened. Now, it's not easy for our hearts to go there. Read the Psalms. You find in the Psalms, you're like, these people are talking to God like, God, what are you doing? Are you crazy, God? Are you, are you asleep? Are you, why, what in the world are you doing? How, why are you running this world this way? Look at these people who, who hate you. you you're, you're making them prosper. What is wrong with you? I mean, it's unbelievable. If you actually read it carefully and think about it from that perspective. But the point is they're taking their emotions and they're wrestling with them where they should before the Lord. And so you also find in the Psalms not only the wrestling 
with the hard things of life, but also the victory of faith that sees that God is a refuge. That can say, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. This is the same victory of faith that enabled our Lord Jesus, facing literally the most unjust sentence in the history of the world, to say while his hands and feet were nailed to a cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus took refuge in his Father. And for us, it's in that careful reflection, meditation, even wrestling, and prayer by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit that we arrive at the place where we can find joy in the midst of the sorrow, that we can find a refuge in the midst of the most terrible things that have been done to us. That's the vision of the prophets. That was their affirmation. In the midst of a world full of evil injustices like those of Assyria, that they could say, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Amen.